six-year-old Leda das Neves Ferreira was used to her father bringing home strange things. His brother, Leda's uncle, ran a junkyard and was always in the market for scrap. Trinkets and tchotchkes constantly passed through his hands. What Ivo Ferreira brought home on September 24th, 1987, however, was unlike anything she'd ever seen. Ivo rushed through the door excitedly and placed a small amount of what looked like cobalt blue grains of rice on the table. They glowed with an iridescent light. Lita had never seen anything so beautiful. As the family poked and prodded at the grains, they broke down into a powder. Lita spread some of the powder on her skin and showed it off. She felt like the prettiest girl in Brazil. It was lunchtime and the family ate while they continued to marvel at the strange substance Ivo had brought home. Leda traced her finger through the glowing powder to draw shapes on the table. She loved the way it looked. Leda nibbled her sandwich with a smile. Her family was poor, but they were happy. She knew her daddy would always take care of her. Welcome to Fatal Errors, the podcast about preventable disasters. Today's story is about how very wrong things can go when someone neglects their responsibilities. It's a story about the dangers of ignorance. And it's a story about how, when accidents happen, it always seems to be the poor who suffer most. But it's also a story about how a competent, well-coordinated response can minimize potential dangers. How education can displace fear. And how people can come together after a disaster to make changes for the better. This is the story of the Goiania accident. Acute radiation syndrome is a horrible way to die. Within a few hours of sufficient exposure to a radioactive source, a person develops nausea, diarrhea, and headache. Their skin turns red, blisters, and peels. Their hair may begin to fall out. Depending on the dose received, within a few hours or days, the sickness enters a latency phase. The symptoms abate. The person may believe they are getting better. After enough time has passed, and with no warning, the symptoms come roaring back, more painful and severe this time. The bone marrow has collapsed, and the body is no longer producing antibodies to fight pathogens. The skin decays and sloughs off and is unable to regenerate. Eating and drinking is impossible. When death finally comes, it can be by organ failure or infection. Three factors intensity of the radiation, duration of exposure, and proximity to the source can be plugged into a mathematical formula to determine one's total absorbed dose in a unit of measurement called the gray. Even one gray is a substantial dose, enough to cause serious sickness, although generally a person can withstand up to three grays and survive given appropriate medical treatment. Above four grays, it's touch and go. It's highly unlikely that a person will survive a dose of six grays or more. Taking proper precautions against radioactivity isn't hard. One must take care to limit the duration of their exposure as radioactivity builds up over time. A quick exposure, as in an x-ray, won't do much damage. It's also important to keep as far from the source as possible. Absorption drops exponentially with distance. You're twice as safe at two feet as you are from one foot and so on. In other words, if you find yourself in a situation where you might be exposed to radiation, your best bet is to get as far away as fast as you can. If that's not possible, then proper shielding is key. Lead and concrete most famously block gamma radiation, but anything you can put between yourself and the source will help, even clothing. These basic preventative measures can be very effective, but here's the catch. 
They only work if you know you're running the risk of exposure. And when a highly radioactive capsule of cesium-137 found its way among the general population of Goiânia, Brazil, nobody knew. Goiânia is a large city in Brazil's central west district and the capital of the Goiás state. It's located about 120 miles from the country's capital, Brasilia. Like Brazil in total, Goiânia boasts decent GDP numbers but suffers from runaway inequality. Particularly in the outlying areas, poverty is rampant. Brazil's poor population tends to be less literate and educated than its higher classes. As in many unequal societies, those on the bottom tend to develop talents for scavenging. They sort through the leftovers that wealthier people have discarded in order to find something of value. That's exactly what brought Roberto dos Santos Alves and Wagner Mota Pereira in September of 1987 to the grounds of the abandoned Instituto Goiano de Radioterapia. The IGR was a private cancer treatment institute that had moved to a new facility at the end of 1985. The building was partially demolished, but some equipment had been left behind. Roberto had heard rumors that some of it could be valuable as scrap, which he could sell. Picking their way through the derelict facility, Roberto and Wagner hit the jackpot. They found an intact machine which had a teardrop-shaped metal shell attached to a vertical column. Within the shell, they found an intricate mechanism constructed of stainless steel, which appeared to have scrap value. Using simple tools, they were able to extricate this rotating assembly, and then transported it by wheelbarrow to Roberto's house nearby, where they placed it on the ground under a tree. By nightfall of September 13th, both men had begun vomiting. Roberto and Wagner didn't know it, but they had succeeded in scavenging the inner workings of a radiotherapy machine, which still contained radioactive cesium-137. The shell that had left behind had been constructed to shield the radiation, as had several layers of the rotating assembly itself. Simply by removing the assembly, they were exposing themselves to low levels of radiation. However, the assembly itself did contain layers of stainless steel and lead. The machine's therapeutic use was to target and destroy cancerous tumors in patients. The inner wheel of the assembly could be rotated so that a focused beam of gamma radiation was released through a small aperture. Gamma rays were effective at killing cancerous and healthy cells both, so patients were exposed to as precise and limited a dose as possible. Yet gamma treatment still came with its share of side effects. It was used sparingly. By September 14th, Wagner had developed diarrhea to go along with his nausea, as well as a headache and dizziness. He had developed a bad burn on his hand in roughly the size and shape of the aperture. He sought medical treatment and was diagnosed with an allergic reaction to something he had eaten. The doctor told him simply to take it easy and avoid strenuous work for a few days. The radioactive assembly remained under the mango tree in Roberto's yard. It wasn't worth much just sitting out there, so despite his own illness, Roberto made another attempt at dismantling it. On September 18th, five days after bringing it home, Roberto made a breakthrough. He punched through the aperture with his screwdriver, and to his surprise found a blue powder inside. Roberto had no idea what he was looking at, but he knew it had to be valuable. Thinking perhaps it was gunpowder, he attempted to light it on fire, but nothing happened. The same day, Roberto sold off the scrap to a junkyard owner named Dever Alves Ferreira for about $25. The pieces, including the ruptured source capsule, were taken to Dever's property. That night, Dever noticed a bewitching blue glow emanating from the capsule. 
Thinking he was looking at a valuable gemstone, or even something supernatural, he brought the capsule into the house to show to his wife, Gabriella Maria. Over the next few days, Devere invited more friends and relatives to witness the strange substance. Several daubed it on their skin. By September 23rd, now 10 days since Roberto dos Santos Alves and Wagner Mota Pereira had removed the rotating assembly from the grounds of the IGR, Devere Ferreira and Gabriela Maria Ferreira were both sick. Suffering from vomiting, diarrhea, and headache, Gabriela Maria sought treatment at São Lucas Hospital. Her diagnosis was the same as Wagner Pereira's, an allergic reaction to food. The doctor sent her home, back to the vicinity of the radioactive source. At the same time, Wagner Pereira returned to the hospital, his condition having worsened in the week since he'd first sought treatment. Besides his internal maladies, Wagner by this time displayed the symptoms of cutaneous radiation syndrome, essentially a radiation burn. Local doctors looked at his red, peeling skin and referred him to the Tropical Diseases Hospital. Still, no one suspected a radiological cause, and no precautions were taken. The source had been sitting in Devere Ferreira's garage for six days when his brother Ivo came to visit on September 24th. At this point, many people had become sick, including two of Devere's employees, who had spent a significant amount of time in close contact attempting to dismantle the assembly. Still, no one had made the connection between the appearance of the mysterious blue powder and the sudden outbreak of illness. Ivo gathered up some of the cesium salt and brought it home to show his family. They, too, were enthralled by its appearance and all handled the material, including little six-year-old Leda. Worse yet, the family ate while handling the source and swallowed some of it, meaning they were exposed internally as well as externally to the powerful radiation. On September 25th, Devere Ferreira sold the scrap, including the remaining cesium, to another junkyard owner. Three more days passed and more people fell ill. Finally, on September 28th, Gabriela Maria Ferreira realized that everyone who had come into contact with the blue substance had gotten sick. She recruited one of Devere's employees and went to retrieve the equipment from the other junkyard. They loaded the entire assembly and its radioactive payload into a plastic bag. Then they boarded a city bus. Gabriela and the employee rode to the Vigilancia Sanitaria, the city's public health department. The ride of roughly one mile took no more than 15 minutes. Everyone on the bus was exposed, but miraculously, the plastic bag shielded the worst of it, and none of the other passengers became seriously ill. At the Vigilancia Sanitaria, Gabriela and the employee dropped the bag and all its contents on the desk of a doctor identified in the IAEA report only as Dr. P.M. Gabriela announced, This is killing my family! Dr. P.M. sent them to a nearby health center where their superficial symptoms were again suspected to be the product of pathogens. They, too, were referred to the Tropical Diseases Hospital. Dr. P.M. at the Vigilancia Sanitaria was wary of the parcel that had been deposited on his desk, and after some time he moved it outdoors, placing it on a chair in a courtyard against a concrete wall where it would remain for another day. By this point, 11 people had been hospitalized with identical symptoms, and at long last, the doctors began to suspect radiation. Dr. Alonso Montero of the Tropical Diseases Hospital knew of a physicist who happened to be in the area by the name of Walter Mendez Ferreira, and got in touch. The next day, Walter borrowed a dose rate monitor from an office of Nuclebras, the state agency for nuclear development. As Walter approached the Vigilancia Sanitaria, he switched on the meter and the reading immediately jumped off the charts. 
Thinking it must have been defective, he returned to Nuclebras to fetch a replacement. When the second dose rate monitor mimicked the first, Walter realized what no one else had. A major source of radiation was loose in Goyanya. It was September 29th, 1987. Sixteen days had passed since the source was removed from the grounds of the IGR. Let's back up for a second. What is radiation? And how does it work? I'm no nuclear scientist, but I think I can give you the gist. Radiation is weird. What we call ionizing radiation comes from the decay of certain isotopes. As an isotope decays, its atoms cast off their neutrons. The collision of these neutrons is what produces nuclear power. When a person is exposed to these neutrons, they get radiation sickness. Here there are two types. Chronic radiation syndrome, in which lower levels of radioactivity accumulate in the body over time, and acute radiation syndrome, in which high doses are received all at once. Both can be deadly. In the case of chronic exposure, the health effects are stochastic. That is, they raise the odds of certain ailments, particularly cancer. But it's impossible to predict with specificity what those effects will be. Acute radiation syndrome can be more concretely measured. When someone receives a high dose of radiation, one gray or more, it can be predicted with close to certainty what the effects will be based on the exposure. In either case, the neutrons from the radioactive source are penetrating the body at the atomic level and ionizing it. The neutrons are physically knocking the electrons out of the body's atoms, causing the degradation of the cells. Now, we're all being exposed to a certain amount of background radiation all the time. Neutrons are passing harmlessly through your body right now. Some of them are even ionizing the atoms in your cells. This radiation comes from many sources, from cosmic rays to the electronics in your home. But the level of everyday radiation that a typical person receives is negligible. Exposure to ionizing radiation, on the other hand, is like being shot with a veritable gatling gun of neutrons. In the normal function of a healthy body, cells die naturally in a process called autophagy. This clears the way for new cells to form. Consider it your body's way of performing scheduled maintenance. But ionization sets off a chain reaction of autophagy that overwhelms the body's ability to function normally. It degrades the immune system, shuts down the digestive system, and eventually causes the body to practically disintegrate. A person doesn't just become sick from radiation poisoning. They also become radioactive. Like victims of a horror movie plague, irradiated people themselves begin to cast off ionizing radiation, endangering others. The things they touch become radioactive. They leave a hazardous trail of radioactivity in their wake, all invisible to the naked eye. Walter Ferreira arrived at the Vigilancia Sanitaria with his dose rate monitor at about 10.20 a.m. on September 29th, and not a moment too soon. Dr. P.M. had become so worried about the strange package sitting in his building's courtyard that he had called the fire department to remove it. They were just about to pick it up and dump it in the nearby river when Walter intercepted them and convinced everyone to leave the building. Dr. P.M. related to Walter the provenance of the radioactive object, and the two went to Dever Ferreira's junkyard, where once again Walter's sensor redlined. With some difficulty, Walter was able to get Dever's family and some neighbors to evacuate. Next, he visited the offices of the Secretary of Health for Goya State and persuaded skeptical officials to put him in touch with the secretary himself, who then contacted Brazil's National Nuclear Energy Commission, or CNEN. 
After the agonizing slowness of the initial contamination, the pace of events began to accelerate. Authorities in Goiania now knew they were dealing with a serious radiological crisis. What they didn't know was how widespread it was. Their objectives were thus threefold. To contain the source, to decontaminate the environment, and to treat the victims. All would prove challenging and require a coordinated international response. Brazilian authorities moved swiftly to cordon off the affected areas. Overnight, they had identified the principal sources of contamination, including the Vigilancia Sanitaria and de Ver Ferreira's courtyard, and evacuated all nearby residents. Out of an abundance of caution, all residents were displaced who may have been subject to any exposure rates above the nominal five millisieverts per year. A high bar, but one authorities felt was worth the aggravation. Rather than remove the source of the radioactivity from its spot in the courtyard of the Vigilancia Sanitaria, the decision was made to isolate it there. From the IAEA report, quote, A small crane was used to lift a section of sewer pipe over the two-meter-high wall of the courtyard and to lower it over the chair. Concrete was then pumped over the wall and into the pipe, filling it and covering the chair and source remnants. As a result, the dose rates in the surrounding area were significantly reduced, and since contamination was not a major problem at this site, much of the area cordoned off could be reopened. End quote. Aerial and ground-based surveys determined that an area of about one square kilometer had been affected, with seven sites showing spikes of radiation. By October 3rd, four days after Walter Ferreira had raised the alarm, the entirety of the contaminated area had been identified, and the affected people sent for treatment. Although over 100,000 people could have been exposed to the radiation at some point, in the end just some 249 people were treated for radiation sickness. A staging area was set up on the grounds of the Olympic Stadium for triage. 22 victims were initially assessed and found to have been externally exposed to the cesium-137. In another one of those quirks of radiation, simply by disrobing and showering, they were able to reduce their readings by 50 to 80 percent. The patients at the Tropical Diseases Hospital and another local hospital were moved to the better-equipped Goiania General Hospital, where protocols were followed for treating radiological illnesses. Because these victims all had some degree of internal exposure, decontamination was difficult. Their skin would be washed, but when they perspired, it would be irradiated all over again. For those patients with internal exposure, doctors administered a substance called Prussian Blue, the first time it had ever been used to treat radiation sickness. They found its efficacy was remarkable, as it dramatically reduced the amount of radioactive material in the body. Patients' waste was constantly monitored and indeed contained higher and higher amounts of radiation as Prussian Blue was given, proving that the substance was flushing the body of contamination. Doctors had little data to go on as far as potential side effects, so varying doses of Prussian Blue were used. Other than constipation, patients responded very well to the treatment. The worst-off patients were transferred yet again to the Marsilio Diaz Naval Hospital in Rio de Janeiro. Not everyone who found themselves in intensive care would perish. The two scavengers who had begun the whole thing when they liberated the rotating assembly from its housing at the IGR survived at a cost. Wagner Pereira had several fingers amputated after he sustained severe burns from carrying the assembly. Roberto dos Santos Alves, the man who had punctured the aperture, received such a devastating localized dose that his entire forearm had to be amputated. Both men would eventually recover. For some, however, it was simply too late. 
On October 23rd, about a month after their initial exposure, both 38-year-old Gabriela Maria Ferreira and 6-year-old Leda Das Neves Ferreira died from acute radiation syndrome. Both had suffered ulceration and necrosis of the skin, massive internal hemorrhaging, and organ failure. Each had incurred a dose of about six grays. Two more would die in the days to come, both employees at Dever Ferreira's junkyard. They were just 18 and 22 years old. But although the radioactive source had spent over two weeks in the wild and roughly 112,000 people had been exposed, there would be no more fatalities. With the immediate danger passed, attention turned toward cleanup, which would take months and require intensive labor. 550 workers helped with the process. Dozens of houses were emptied and decontaminated with vacuums and pressure washers. Seven houses were so irradiated that there was no alternative but to demolish them and cart away the remains. As an example of the attention to detail and the competence of the authorities running the show, consider this detail from the IAEA report. The decision whether to contaminate or dispose of items depended on the ease of contamination, except for items of special value such as jewelry or personal items of sentimental value. To see toys, photographs, and other items of obvious sentimental value heaped in a yard for possible disposal had a disturbing effect on residents and technicians. This is a psychological aspect of an accident that should not be overlooked. Whenever possible, these sentimental items were retained. Radioactive topsoil was plowed over and removed. Effective vegetation was cut down and disposed of. Goiania was largely decontaminated by the new year of 1988. On the outskirts of Goiania today are buried over 3,000 cubic meters of contaminated waste, which won't be safe enough for people for another 300 years. The failure of officials at the Instituto Goiano de Radioterapia to dispose of the radiotherapy unit that was left behind and to notify licensing authorities of its presence was an unforgivable error. The Brazilian federal government brought a civil suit against the IGR, its owners, CNEN itself, and other entities. A judgment was not rendered until March 17th, 2000. It required the guilty parties to contribute to a victim's fund in the amount of 1.3 million Brazilian real, which at the time was worth about 675,000 US dollars. Not named in the suit, but perhaps no less liable, was the manufacturer of the device itself. It lacked any warning labels on either the outside or the inside. Even as something as simple as the familiar black on yellow trefoil could have been enough to scare off would-be scavengers. Its absence is baffling. That lack of information is the true culprit of the Goiania accident. People simply didn't know they had anything to fear. And ignorance also led to perhaps the saddest twist of all in this strange story. As the body of six-year-old Leda Das Neves Ferreira was about to be buried in a lined casket, terrified townspeople attempted to block the interment. They feared she would irradiate the surrounding land and water. Such a thing was impossible, of course, but in the absence of information, fear takes root. Eventually, the protesters dispersed, and Leda was laid to rest. Dever Ferreira survived, despite sustaining a dose of seven grays. But the accident would eventually claim his life in another way. He lapsed into depression and drinking, and died in 1994 from cirrhosis of the liver. Ivo Ferreira, too, was haunted by his role in the affair, and died of emphysema in 2003, with radiation possibly a contributing factor. 
Spurred by the accident, the International Atomic Energy Agency worked to create more rigorous safety standards for the handling and disposal of radioactive sources, adopting what they call a cradle-to-grave approach. There is now an international standard for preventing and responding to disasters of this kind, including transparency and public relations. Such improvements have not, however, completely stopped civilian radiation accidents from occurring. As recently as 2018, a source containing iridium-192, a highly radioactive isotope used in the construction of dirty bombs, was stolen in Malaysia. It has not been recovered. Fatal Errors is researched, written, and narrated by me, Mitch Kirpata, and features original music by Dylan Lane. I'm indebted to the International Atomic Energy Agency, whose comprehensive report on the Goyanya accident is available for free at www.iaea.org. My apologies for mispronouncing any and everything in the Portuguese language in this episode. Until next time, stay safe.